before we get into the message, uh, we get the opportunity to dedicate some kids to the Lord. So if those households want to make your way up to the stage, that'd be great. We'd love to see uh, parents who are uh, publicly committing to raise their children in the ways of the Lord and committing to uh, do that alongside the church family. And uh, this is a, a sweet little gift for us to share on a Thanksgiving weekend, for us to be reminded as a church, here are some households that we are praying for, loving, supporting, and here are some children to be praying for. As they make their way up here, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. And then a child dedication service or opportunity is basically a charge to them as parents and then a charge to you as the church. And then we uh, pray for these households. So, Hi, I'm Linda Mayotte. Uh, these are my three boys, Peyton, Levi, and Jet. I'm Angela Greer, and this is my husband, James Greer, and our son, Brevin, and our son, Tucker. Thank you. Uh, the Bible declares that children are a gift from the Lord. As believers in Christ, as followers of Him, we are called to recognize that children belong first and foremost, not to a mom and dad, but to the Lord Himself. And so, as parents, we are uh, called to then dedicate or hold our children before the Lord and say, uh, in a sense, Lord, uh, we want to steward these children well. We want to raise them well in a way that would glorify the Father, lead them uh, to Jesus, shepherd their hearts toward the Lord. Parents, in this act of dedication today, you are declaring before the Lord and the Crosspoint family a few things. Uh, that first of all, your children are a gift from God that they were given to you by the Lord in His timing and in accordance to His will, and that God has given you the opportunity, the privilege to provide for them, provide for their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. You're also committing uh, to actively raise your children in the ways of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4 says, Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The Bible serves as the foundation of our lives and how we raise our children. You know very well, that parenting is a challenging, uh, hands-on, 24-7 role. It is challenging, and yet it is also deeply rewarding to see the fruit of your labor and to see the Lord cause the growth as you plant and water. It requires a continual dependence upon the Lord because parenting has a way of exposing your own heart as you are shepherding your children. The Father's shepherding and shaping your own heart. As parents, we are called to reflect our great Heavenly Father to our children we point our children to Jesus with our words and our way of life. Our children will follow us, so we need to ensure that we are first following Jesus. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7 reminds us of that truth. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Parents, your first responsibility is to love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to teach your children to do the same, to allow the, the Father to reign and rule in your heart, to enjoy the Lord in relationship and have your, parent, or have your children witness that enjoyment, to allow the Holy Spirit to transform your heart and life more and more into the image of Christ as your children grow up. The last thing you are declaring in this dedication 
is that you don't want to do this journey called parenting alone. That you need and that you want the help and the prayers and the encouragement and the love and the support of a church family, of a body of Christ to walk alongside you. One of the schemes of the enemy is to try to isolate us, but in this moment you are saying we're not going to walk out as a, as a parent alone. We are going to walk this out in community with one another. By coming forward before God and His people today, do you hereby declare your desire to dedicate yourselves and your children to the Lord? Do you promise by God's help and in partnership with the church to provide your children with a Christ-centered home to raise them in the truth of God's Word and to encourage them to one day trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If that's your desire, would you please respond by saying we do. Modeling this kind of love cannot be done alone. Following Jesus is not an isolated activity. It is one that we do in community with one another as brothers and sisters. This is the teaching of the New Testament, that the local church is a body, is a family, is a flock, all these different metaphors that remind us that, that we don't follow and trust in Jesus by ourselves. We do that alongside others within the family of God. Parents have the first responsibility to their children to disciple at home, but parents also need the encouragement of the church family in partnership in making disciples, whether it be through sun chasers or hype or simply through relationship with one another in the family. So I direct my questions now to you, the church. Crosspoint family, do you promise by God's help to be faithful in your calling as members of the body of Christ to help these parents be faithful to the Lord and to help come alongside them to teach and train and lead these children to the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. If that is your desire, would you please respond by saying we do. Uh, at this time, we want to invite friends, family, uh, elders, staff, community group leaders, would you come up now? And uh, we want to pray for these households. Joel, one of our elders, is going to pray for them, but I'd love for you to come up now and to, uh, to surround these households uh, because this is a picture of what we are going to be doing in the years ahead, what we have been doing, what we desire to do as a church family to love these families well and love these children well, love these parents well. Now, church, let's bow our head in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today uh, around these, these two households. Um, God, we lift up Linda and Angela and James to you, Lord, um, as they've committed their children to, to you here. We pray for patience and wisdom uh, in parenting, not only today, but into the future and whatever you hold each day for them. I thank you for Peyton. Thank you for Levi. I thank you for Jet, I thank you for Brevin, and I thank you for Tucker, these young men that are a, a part of our, our church family. God, may you um, continue to walk with them daily. God, we ask that you would grow them to men who come to know and love you and follow you as a way of life. God, may their parents, may the church family um, be a representation of Christ to them. Um, may our time spent together, our actions, words, thoughts, prayers for them um, be reflective of Christ's love for us. May be, they be raised in a church family who knows them, uh, is known by them, um, and models Christ's love as a way of life. God, we need you. We are um, the branches. You are the vine. Help us to abide in you as a way of life, uh, as the family of God. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
it's good to be alongside you, church family, in a gathering where we can uh, give thanks, where we can greet one another, where we can pray for one another. Uh, this is a good picture of what the church family does as a way of life, not simply in this gathering. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, get to the book of Jonah, and if you need to use the table of contents to get there, there's no shame in that. Uh, it is located toward the end of your Old Testament in the section of the Minor Prophets. Sunchaser kiddos, I'm glad you're with us. Today we finish up our series, Return to Me, where we have looked at uh, four different Minor Prophets, four of the twelve. We've looked at uh, Hosea, Habakkuk, uh, Joel, and then today is Jonah. And when you think of Jonah, Sunchaser kids, when you think of Jonah, what do you think about? Shout out what you think about. When you think about the story of Jonah, what do you think about? What elements or what characteristics of that story? A whale? Someone said a whale? He was eaten by a massive fish. That's a great answer. He was eaten by a massive fish. We're going to read about that today. And when we think about the story of Jonah, typically that's where our minds go. Because we've watched the Veggie Tales, we've watched the, the different uh, stories that remind us and, and, and highlight what happens in chapter 2 of this story. But ultimately, the big fish is not the big point of this book. It is an element of this book. It is definitely a part of the story, but it is not ultimately what we are to walk away with as we consider this book. A big fish swallowing a guy, a worldwide flood, the parting of the Red Sea. The, these are Old Testament stories that we take by faith. At the same time, the New Testament has even greater ones, greater elements, greater supernatural stories. A young girl being conceived by the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth of Jesus, the resurrection on the third day probably takes the cake. So we must not think that a fish swallowing a guy is really that biggest step of faith for us to take as we open our Bibles. As God's people, we believe our God is a supernatural God. If He isn't, then He isn't worthy of our worship. Then He isn't worthy for us to bow down before Him if He isn't a supernatural God, a God who is a miracle-working God, not only in creation, but we also see it in the saving and transforming of our hearts and our lives. If salvation... The truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is a miracle in and of itself. We could consider our own stories and say it is a miracle that I'm even following Jesus. That He loved me enough to pursue me. Jonah has four chapters. And a quick storyline of the, of the story is chapter 1, Jonah is running from the Lord. Chapter 2, Jonah is praying in the belly of the fish. Chapter 3, he is preaching to the Ninevites who he considers an enemy of himself and the Israelites. And then chapter 4, we see Jonah's response to the Lord and his saving power in the lives of the Ninevites. And I pray that as we talk through this book, that our own hearts get revealed and how we probably relate to Jonah more than we would like to admit or consider. At the same time, I also pray that we would see the uh, be reminded of the nature and character of our Lord as revealed to us through the Scriptures. So chapter 1, we see Jonah running from the Lord. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up, come up before me. 
Nineveh is a massive, bustling, important city in the Assyrian kingdom. Jonah is an Israelite prophet. Assyria is an enemy of Israel. The Ninevites were wicked to the Israelites. They were not honorable in war. They were just pure evil. And God is commissioning Jonah to go and preach to his enemies, and yet Jonah runs. Verse 3, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. God calls him to go to Nineveh, and Jonah is going to Tarshish, and Tarshish is repeated three times over in just four verses for effect to draw the reader's attention to the outright disobedience of Jonah. Because Tarshish is, isn't necessarily adjacent to Nineveh. It's not next door. The Tarshish is the opposite direction. And at that time, Tarshish is considered to be literally at the edge of the world. Jonah's going as far away as he can get. Like the toddler, you parents that were just up here, you parents out there in the middle of a family service, like the toddler that runs the corner of the room trying to hide. La, 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 I can't hear my parents' voice. It's silly. It's silly. It's not going to happen. Jonah is the one prophet in Scripture that we see trying to run from the Lord's presence and command. Notice how it says he went down to Joppa, that he went down into the ship. He's literally trying to run as far away as he can get. But this reveals this, this downward direction of Jonah's heart and spirit. It's a picture of the downward spiral that sin and disobedience will lead us on. And we look at the story and we go, silly Jonah, don't you know that you can't escape the Lord's presence? Don't you know that you can't run to the corner of the room? Don't you know that the Lord's plans and purposes are better for you and others than your own plans and purposes? Jonah, 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 you're just so silly. And, and then we have a moment, if we're humble enough, to go, oh wait, uh, I've done that before. Or I'm doing that right now in my life. Loved ones, where is the Lord calling you to obedience or to follow Him and you're running the other way? You're trying to find a one-way ticket the other way? No parent is content with their child running the opposite direction when called. And our Father in Heaven is not content with that either. We'll see that on display in this story, the Father pursuing the wanderer, the rebel. So may we humbly follow knowing that He's for our good. May we reject the temptation to run downward and away looking for a sinful ship to take us away because there are a thousand different choices to choose from of sinful ships to take us away. So then verses 4 through 6, But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Do you see the irony here? The sailors who do not worship the God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites, are praying to any small G God that they can think of. They're throwing words and actions at any God they can think of in hopes that the storm that is tearing them apart will stop. 
And yet the one who says he worships Almighty God is hiding down below, not praying at all. The captain's like, hey, 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 new, new guy on the ship. Hey, wake up, wake up. Could you, could you join us in prayer? Could you join us in praying so this ship doesn't tear us apart? Could you wake up? Jonah's rebellion is having an effect on others. It is literally sinking the ship. See, one of the great lies of our spiritual enemy is that our sin is it's just ours. It has no effect on others. That we can nurse private sin and it won't have any outward consequences. No consequences reaching to others. But loved ones, our sin even if in private, always has a compounding effect in our lives. And often God uses that compounding effect, you might call it a storm, to not only expose the sin, but then to move us toward the light of His goodness and His holiness. Verse 7, come on. The sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God, I'm, I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us for the sea was getting worse and worse you can imagine the eyes of these sailors as they hear jonah say these words you mean you worship the god who made the sea that now threatens to kill us right now and you're down here sleeping you're, you're trying to run from the god who made the heavens that we're under those stars in the sky that we can look out on a God who you say you worship? So the sailors are going, okay, worshiper of creator God, what should we do? Because we don't want to die. Verse 12, he answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the, people rode, or the, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. We don't know for sure what Jonah's motives were here. It could be a woe is me, I've sinned, chuck me over the boat. It could be a last-ditch effort to truly flee from God's command to get even more and more downward. What we do know is the sailors aren't quick to take him up on his suggestion. Okay, good idea, Jonah. Uh, we're going to try to use our own strength to get us back to dry land. Nevertheless, verse 13 says, they couldn't because, loved ones, it is useless. It is tiresome to fight against the plans of a sovereign and good God. The sailors give up rowing, trust in what Jonah told them to do. Verse 14, so they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. Basically, like, hey, hey he told us to do this. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Again, do you see the irony here? 
the prophet of God, whose role it was to speak on behalf of the Lord, is on a ship with a bunch of unbelieving sailors. And yet, he's missing it. His focus is on himself, trying to run away. And yet, what does the Lord do in his goodness and grace? He's going to save Jonah from drowning. And at the same time, he's brought the men who were on this boat to a place of repentance and faith. It says they were seized with great fear of the Lord. They began to worship the God of the Israelites. See, God works in spite of Jonah's rebellion. That reality is not then a justification for us to, well, see, my, my life doesn't matter. My private sin doesn't matter. This is not a license to, to do whatever we want. This is evidence that our God can take even broken and stormy circumstances that we've all walked through, that we are all possibly in right now in various ways. He can use those for His glory and for the good of His people because our God is infinite in power, wisdom, and love. Can you imagine this moment for Jonah? The sea is calmed down. He's in the water. He's treading water. He's possibly floating. The storm is gone. He's thinking, great, my plan has worked. Or possibly he's thinking, I wonder what's next. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So you may, we may try and flee to the corner and plug our ears and go, la, 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 la. Our God is pursuing you. Our God pursues us. And some of you are in the corner right now, pretending as if you can hide from the Lord's presence. He is pursuing you. Why? Because He loves you. The story continues. The scene moves from a ship in the midst of a terrible storm to now being the belly of a fish. And, and here's what we must see as we look at the story. The fish is evidence of God's grace. The fish is evidence that God pursues those He loves, that He will use whatever means possible to bring someone back from their rebellion and sin. Because, listen, He is not getting Jonah back for his sin. The Lord is bringing Jonah back from his sin. There's a vast difference. He's not getting him back. He's not paying him back for his sin. He's bringing him back from his sin so that he would walk in freedom so that he would enjoy the Lord and, and see how good it is to follow the Lord. This is all part of God's sovereign plan to bring Jonah back and to work both in him and in the people of Nineveh. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and yet despite those circumstances, the Lord is giving life to Jonah. Not going to let this story end while he's in the belly. The story doesn't end in chapter 2. The Lord will be faithful both in the present while he's in the belly and in the future. Jonah's in a smelly, dark, and tight space. I can't imagine how nasty that is. And what has led him there is his own disobedience, his own rebellion. It's not the Lord that's led him there. It's his own actions, the, the natural consequences of his rebellion. And so how do we see Jonah respond in the belly? Prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. We won't look at it at length today, but, but this week or today, you should. You should look at this prayer that he has and look at the Scriptures. If you have kids, if you don't have kids, what is he declaring about the Lord and what is he confessing about his own heart? 
answering those questions and to see what this prayer teaches you and teaches us about prayer. So one truth I do want to draw our attention to is what Jonah prays in verse 9. He says, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But notice salvation in Jonah's case being vomited out. It hasn't come yet. But he is confident it will because he knows his God is good. And notice who Jonah ascribes salvation to. It's to the Lord. Jonah's salvation from that, from that belly isn't on Jonah's work to get up the throat and pry apart the mouth and slither out. No, it's, it's, in, it's in his surrender as he's in the midst of the belly. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Our part in salvation is, is our, own, our own surrender, our own humility, our own trust, shifting our trust away from ourself and our ability to climb out of the fish and rather... Confess that only the Lord can pull us out of the depths. Pull us out of the muck and mire and set our feet upon a rock. We cannot climb out of that in our own strength. And notice that while he is still in the stinky, dark, cramped belly, he's offering up a voice of thanksgiving, it says. Thanksgiving. He's giving thanks prior to deliverance, prior to vomit. Because he knows the Lord is faithful to hear the humble prayer of a surrendered heart. And then verse 10, it reads, Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah has been given a second chance. A resurrection has occurred. Jonah is returning to the mission that he was set out, sent out in the first place. And as he just prayed, one truth that missionaries must know is that salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord will do the work as we go, as we proclaim. The Lord is who saves, not our eloquence, not our skill, our ability. We don't cause the growth. We are called to plant and water and scatter as a way of life. If you're a Christ follower, you are a missionary. This is not a title you pick up later when you know, know more. This is not a title that you grow into from day one of your conversion to Christ. When you repent and believe the good news from that point forward, you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and you are a disciple maker. Someone who shows and tells of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. You are on mission to make disciples of Christ. In chapter 3, we see the Lord at work in and through the prophet and the missionary of Jonah. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. The same message from the Lord, a completely different response this time. First time it was, I'm not going to that city. I'm going to run instead. I'm going to go literally the opposite direction to the edge of the world. This time, he gets up and goes to Nineveh. And the city of Nineveh hasn't changed. The people he will preach to haven't changed. They're as far from the Lord as they were before. They still have the same history of being wicked to the Israelites and evil toward them. They're still bitter enemies of the Israelites. And on paper, the rationality of this missionary endeavor hasn't changed. It still makes zero sense in our human minds to send a lone prophet into a massive city of enemies. And at the same time, what hasn't changed is the Lord hasn't changed. 
salvation still belongs to Him. So what has changed between chapter 1 and chapter 3? It's Jonah's heart. It's not Nineveh. It's not the Lord Himself. It's Jonah. In the belly, we read of Jonah's prayerful repentance toward the Lord. And then here in chapter 3, we learn that repentance doesn't just remain at words. It actually leads to change of direction and change of action. Repentance in the belly isn't going to lead to perfection on land. We'll see that in chapter 4. But it will lead to change and growth in Jonah. The Lord calls Jonah to get up and go. Jonah got up and went. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Most scholars say that the three-day walk means the amount of time it would have taken to walk the surrounding walls of the city. Some scholars say the circumference was 60 miles around. The walls of the city were probably 100 feet high. They had multiple towers along, along the wall that would have stretched another 100 feet in the air. So 20 stories up in the air. It would have taken eight years to, to build this city. Imposing, daunting, formidable, overwhelming. These would have been the thoughts as Jonah approached this city. But missionaries understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. And no one or nothing is greater than He is. Nothing is beyond Him. So our willingness to go and proclaim is not based upon our assumptions of, of the other person's willingness to hear and respond. Not there, so we're not uh, worried about. We shouldn't be concerned about their walls or their towers. Do you have someone in your life who is not a believer? And if, when you think about sharing the gospel with them, you're thinking that is an imposing, formidable, daunting, possibly even an overwhelming idea. If you have someone like that, which if you're living, I bet you do, you probably do. Be reminded, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. That no one is beyond the saving and redeeming power of the gospel. We should be the ones who recognize that. That we were not beyond. God saved us, so God is able to save the person who we dearly love and are praying that they would come to faith. We need to be reminded that we are called to walk by faith and not by the sight of their walls that you see in front of you. He wants he wants you to get up and go because the Son of God on the third day got up and went. He walked out and now He charges us to get up and go and make disciples of all nations. And as we go, He promises that He will be with us to the very end of the age. The Lord's grace toward Jonah is all over this book. The storm in chapter 1, it's a grace that is exposing sin. The fish in chapter three or chapter 2, Grace that is saving and sanctifying. A seemingly impossible task to preach to the enemies in chapter 3. It's grace that moves Jonah to trust in the Lord and not trust in himself. Verse 4, Jonah uh, set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. In, in the original Hebrew, it's five words long. Depending on your English translation, it's seven to eight words long. I've gone over that today. Now, when we see Jonah's attitude in chapter 4, some might argue that the short message was kind of his begrudging, okay, fine, I'll do it. We don't really know. It's tough to know that for sure. Here's what we do know. Jonah has walked into the city of Nineveh. People who are his enemies are all around. Nineveh is a religious city. They don't worship the one true God 
They worship false idols. And in the middle of that scene, he says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. What? They believed God? What made them believe? Was it Jonah's PowerPoint presentation? Next slide. Next slide. I don't think anyone would argue that that's a great communication of the gospel. There's no call to repent. There's no mention of who will be judging the city. He's a prophet of the Lord. He doesn't even mention the Lord's name. There's no talk of hope. There's no talk of that God will relent if the people repent. So what made them believe? Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Spirit of God was at work in Jonah, through Jonah. Verse 6, when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat on ashes, sat in ashes. So just as with Jonah, inward repentance is leading to outward change. Saving faith in God, belief in God, always leads to a life change actions. We see it here in the king of Nineveh. And keep in mind who this is. Assyria is one of the most powerful, greatest nations on the earth at that time. And the king, with all his authority, all his power, gets up from his throne, a symbol of power, takes off his robe, a symbol of power, and he puts on sackcloth, sits in ashes, both of which reflect a heart that is grieved over sin. He's now aware of how holy God is and how unholy he and his people are. That they are deserving of judgment because when compared to an almighty God, the king knows he is not almighty. The king is humbled before the one and only eternal king. And he wants everyone in the city to repent as well. A citywide revival is taking place because the Lord appointed a prophet to give a five-word message and the Lord would use those words to bring people back to faith in Christ and bring Him glory. You see in verses 7 through 9 that their belief in and worship of the Lord then turns, turns them from turning, or turns them away from evil ways and wrongdoing in the city and toward the Lord. And then verse 10, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster He had threatened them with, and He did not do it because our God does not delight in judgment. Our God does not delight in judgment. Our God delights in the salvation. Heaven rejoices when sinners repent. Our God desires to show compassion and mercy. If He didn't, He wouldn't send Jonah into this city. For some of us, maybe a lot of us, we feel like we've blown it as a missionary more than we've gotten it right. Like you leave a conversation if you're like me and you go, 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, ah, I should have said that, I should have asked that, I should have prayed about that. Where you're listening to this kind of message and you go, I got someone in, my, in mind and the Spirit has brought someone to mind and you're, you're thinking, I've missed opportunities before. Maybe you just missed an opportunity Thursday or Friday in a family gathering. Or I've been fearful before. And in many ways, Jonah is a reluctant prophet. If we're honest, we can relate to Jonah's reluctant attitude sometimes, but be encouraged, Crosspoint, 
missionaries in chapter 1, Jonah missed an opportunity. Chapter 3, a second chance. He had another opportunity. Before us, by God's grace, we have opportunities before us, good works that He has prepared in advance for us to do. Our call is to respond to His attitude or His command to say, get up and go. Our call is to get up and go. Because the Lord has brought about a second chance in our lives as a missionary. His mercies are new every morning. And while we still have breath in our lungs, the Lord has providentially, by His goodness, placed us into families, friend circles, schools, work, workplaces, teams, neighborhoods, a nation, a world, to be on mission for Him, to be about His kingdom and His mission. And as missionaries, we are aware that salvation belongs to the Lord. He draws, He saves, He redeems, He rescues. He has done the work on the cross and the resurrection. For those of us who are Christ followers, we are aware that salvation has come to us and we are compelled now to go as a missionary, compelled by love, because we are convinced that it's only through trusting in Jesus that we are saved. And that, it's the, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. And then finally, in chapter 4, this short book ends in the oddest of ways. The first four verses says this, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. So the city has a citywide revival, and this is Jonah's response. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asks, is it right for you to be angry? See, Jonah's angry because his enemies were saved from judgment and condemnation. And there's no resolution to his anger recorded in this book. We're not sure how it ends. It's a terrible, terrible movie ending. And yet, this odd ending reminds us of two things. One is about us and one is about the Lord. First of all, about us. Missionaries never stop being in need of the grace of God. We do not graduate from in need of His grace. We won't be perfect in Christ, this side of heaven, but by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, we want our lives to be marked by a progress in the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit, rather than the fruit of, fruit of the flesh. We don't want anger, in this case in Jonah, or bitterness or hate. We don't want those to be life markers for us. We want love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We want those to be the markers of our life in an increasing, progressing manner. So where our hearts have been revealed this morning, may we be quick to repent and humble to do so. And then finally, we are reminded about who our God is. He is the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, the one who relents from sending disaster. This is His unchanging character. And we are His ambassadors as we go from this place. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the timeless, relevant, unchanging truth that it reveals to us. 
I thank you that your word reads us. It reveals our own hearts and where it has done so. I pray that we would have a humble posture to your spirit's work, to your shaping hands as you shape our hearts and our lives more and more into the image of Christ. Thank you for revealing to us through this story about who you are, that you are the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. And we give you praise that salvation belongs to you. And salvation is not based upon our eloquence, our ability, our skill. It belongs to you. So would you give us a growing faith, a growing trust, a growing belief that the gospel is truly the power to save anyone who believes. We pray for those who we consider in our minds and hearts today as we consider a message about being on mission. We pray for the salvation of our loved ones. We pray that they would come to faith in you, saving faith that we would see radical change in their life and that change would bring you so much glory. God, we pray for salvations in those who we love. We pray that your family would grow in the coming weeks, in the coming year. We trust you, we serve you. We thank you that you are with us as we go on mission. We pray this in your name, amen.